1: Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. And I'm Trisha Bobita. And today we are celebrating the 150th episode of Nerdette. Woo! Oh, I feel like I should have a kazoo or something. Oh, or a vuvuzela. Yeah,
2: exactly. We need vuvuzelas.
1: Oh. <laughs> we're making a big deal out of the 150th episode because we kind of forgot to do anything about the 100th episode. Yeah, that's
2: true. That's true. We were busy, guys.
1: <laughs> but we wanted to do something really special for the sesquicentennial. How are you doing? It's
2: good. I forgot how much that hurts.
1: Yeah, it sucks. Yeah, that's Greta getting a tattoo. Yeah, that's pretty f- horrible.
0: Yeah.
1: And since we're co-hosts and we do most, if not everything, together, <laughs> this also happened. Oh, that's not so bad. No, I mean, it's horrible, but it's also, like... Uh, yeah.
2: Horrible. It's annoying, but bearable. Yeah. That's
1: a good way to say it. And that's me getting my tattoo, my first ever tattoo. Yeah, it's actually not so bad. I thought it was going to hurt worse than this. She says
2: prematurely. It is worth noting that we didn't get, like, the Nerdette logo tattooed onto our faces or anything really intense like that.
1: No, that's for the 300th episode. <laughs>
2: 300? Okay, I guess maybe by 300 I'll be ready for that.
1: Also, I have to um, read this disclaimer that we got from our legal department. You know, this is important. Okay. Chicago Public Media does not endorse nor reimburse tattoos or affiliated tattoo acquisition activities heretofore and in perpetuity. The activities of the date in question, henceforth known as Tattoos Day, are the sole responsibility of Trisha Bobita and Greta Johnson exclusively. Got that out of the way. Thank you, Trisha, for that disclaimer. That's very important. Very legal.
2: So as I mentioned, we did not, in fact, get Nerd Out logos tattooed onto our faces, but we both did get pretty nerdy tats. Yeah. I actually got like a mathematical representation of particle collision on my shoulder blade. And what would you get, Trisha? Okay,
1: since you asked, I'll tell you about my tattoo. It's a circle with inside it the written language of Gallifrey, which is the planet the doctor is from in Doctor Who. So this is a Doctor Who themed tattoo. Mm-hmm. But what it says is my dad's favorite saying, which is very important to me, which is consider the source, which is a journalist I find helpful, but also as a person. Taking a minute always to think about why someone is saying what they're saying. So yeah, they are
2: different tattoos, but they're both pretty nerdy. And I feel like they both involve a fair amount of lines and squiggles.
1: And at the end of today's episode, you will get to hear my mother's reaction. To finding out about my first tattoo. Oh, I always love to hear from Marsha. But first, our interview
2: for this week is with Jill Tarter. She is an astronomer and the former director of SETI, which is the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Essentially, what these guys do is use huge satellites and point them out into outer space and listen for
1: aliens. They're listening really hard at space to try to see if anyone's trying to make contact which is actually the name of the Carl Sagan book from 1985 that Jill Tarter inspired with her real-life science. In the book, you know, they find aliens, and it's kind of awesome. Yeah, that part's not That part true. hasn't happened to Jill Tarter yet. It hasn't happened yet. Uh-huh. She's played by Jodie Foster in the movie version of Contact that came out 20 years ago. And if you're like me, and you've ever wondered if we are alone in the universe, then you need to listen to this conversation because Jill Tarter's going to explain to us what will happen if and when... We make contact with aliens. How did you first get your start with SETI, and why was this something that uh, was a question that you wanted to spend a career trying to answer? Well, SETI itself
3: was a bit of an accident. I did an undergraduate degree in engineering physics, decided, and please, this is not true today, but it was true then, Decided at the end of five years, if engineers are as boring as my professors, I'm going to use these really good skills that I've acquired to go find interesting problems. And I ended up in astronomy and astrophysics. My first year as a graduate student, I was hired as a research assistant to program the world's first kind of desktop computer, the PDP-8 slash S. Personally, I always thought the slash S stood you stupid because <laughs> this machine had 64,000 bytes of memory. Wow. And it had 11 instructions and no language. So you programmed it in octal. Years later, I was still a graduate student, and this machine was obsolete, given to an X-ray astronomer, Stu Boyer, who had had a very clever idea about how to use UC Berkeley's radio telescope, To do SETI at the same time the radio astronomers were doing their traditional research. But he had no money. So he went begging, and somebody gave him this old computer. He said, What do I do with this? And they said, You know, Jill, she's down there. She's still here. Why don't you go talk to her? And he did. He came and recruited me to work with his project. And I was just overwhelmed. I learned that after millennia of all of us asking the priests and the philosophers what we should believe about this very important old question, are we alone? That suddenly, in the middle of the 20th century, we developed these tools that would allow scientists and engineers to actually do an exploration to try and answer the question, to find out what is, rather than what somebody tells us we had to believe. And I was hooked. I mean, I thought, wow, I'm in the right place, the right time. I have the right tool and skills. I'm going to go for this. And I did, and I have.
1: You've mentioned elsewhere that we're such a young technology. The amount of time that we as humans have been able to listen and to look and to measure has been really not much time at all. And even in just the last 20 years since the film Contact first came out, I wonder you know, what progress has been made in what SETI can do and what other researchers can do when it comes to those tools you're mentioning. All right. Let me
3: see if I can give you an analogy that quantifies how little, right? If you're looking for signals and that's all you're looking for, and that could be the wrong thing. There might be something else that we should be doing, but we haven't invented that technology yet. But if you're looking for electromagnetic signals... Then the haystack you have to search through is nine-dimensional, three dimensions of space, one of time, two senses of polarization, what kind of modulation scheme. And lastly, you don't know how far away the transmitter is or how strong it might be, so you don't know how sensitive you have to be in your search to be successful. Nine dimensions. All right. Wrap that all up, that cosmic haystack, and say the volume of that space we want to search is equal to the volume of Earth's oceans. And we've been searching for 50 years, and we've been trying to make better tools to do the searching. So how much of that ocean have we explored? And the answer is essentially one 12-ounce glass of the ocean. All right, now, if your experiment was, I wonder if there are any fish in the ocean. I'm going to do this experiment. I'm going to take a 12-ounce glass. I'm going to dip it in and look to see if I've caught any fish. If you didn't catch fish... I don't think you'd be likely to conclude there are no fish in the ocean. Maybe you'd conclude that you need to start dipping a lot more glasses, a lot faster and bigger glasses. And that's where we are today. And fortunately, the improvement in computer technology is able to give us an enormous exponential step up here so that our glasses really are getting bigger Even though it's a big ocean, I'm really excited to begin an exploration.
1: When did you first find out that Carl Sagan was writing this book and that you might find one of the characters in some way familiar? (laughs) Well, Carl was a colleague
3: and I was at a meeting that Carl also attended and he said, Come on up to the house. We're gonna have a cocktail party tonight. So I went and he and Annie took me over aside and they said Carl's writing a science fiction book. And I said, oh, come on. The New York Times told us last weekend how much money he'd gotten as an advance for this book. And we are jealous as hell. (laughs) It's just amazing. And they laughed, And and then Anne said, well, yeah, there might be somebody you think you recognize in the book. But um, I think you'll like her. (laughs) I just shrugged it off and I said, oh, look, as long as she doesn't eat ice cream cones for lunch – then nobody who knows me is going to think that that character is me. So, fine. Tell me more about these ice cream cones Oh, these a ice cream cones. We were working at NASA Ames Research Center. It was an old naval base and not much in the way of amenities. It did have a cafeteria, but it was cafeteria food. But it had a Baskin's and Robbins <laughs> on it. And so my colleagues and I would take a hike, right? It was, it was quite a hike. But, it, you know, it was good exercise, and so we would have ice cream for lunch every day. Yeah, and,
1: you smooth out the long walk and the ice cream, and it's a it wash. It just works pretty, <laughs> you know,
3: hand-ready food. You don't have to sit around and eat it there. You can take it with you. So it was a perfect solution for lunch at that place.
1: So the book comes out, and then later on the film comes out. And I wonder what you think the film Contact was able to do for young people's interest in astronomy. What What role did it play?
3: Well, I think it was very impactful. When they started out, Warner Brothers had this as one of their goals. They wanted to increase interest in STEM fields, particularly by young women. And I'm not sure that they ever kept any formal metrics so that I can't quantify it. But I do know from personal experience that film has been out there now long enough so that I am frequently the recipient of comments like, That film was so important. That film was what changed my mind. That film was what made me become a scientist. So I know it's out there. And it, uh, oh, that's an interesting phrase. (laughs) Um, That effect is there. I can't quantify it for you, but it's certainly in my life something I see all the time. And it's great. We should do more of it.
2: Coming up, what would happen if SETI actually found a signal from another alien
1: civilization? You're listening to Nerdette.
0: Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Tanwen Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO Original Limited series.
1: If SETI picks up a reading, uh, intercepts a signal, what, to your estimation, would that chain of events really look like? How much evidence would you need to have to be sure enough to throw a flare up and get attention? How much evidence do you think it would take to convince others to take it seriously?
3: Well, for the programs that we have running at the SETI Institute, we have a, a set of protocols that we think we will go through. We have had a few false positives that have started us down those steps. The longest one lasted sort of 24 hours, and we never got to the stage where you call up the director of an observatory to the West who has the right frequency coverage, and you say, could you discreetly take a look and tell us what you see? Because... One of the things we worry about a lot is a hoax We're a very attractive opportunity for hoaxes. And we want to make sure that someone using equipment that we didn't build and software that we didn't write can confirm independently our uh, results. And then once you get an independent confirmation, you want to, as quickly as possible, arrange that the discovery information gets sent out to every observatory in the world. There's a thing called an IAU telegram system that we would use to alert every observatory to something that may be time-critical because we have no idea how long this signal might be there. And you get all your colleagues looking at this area of the sky with whatever instruments they choose to employ to see what else might be there. And then you start... You know, fill in the blanks and get a paper off to a journal and then, then you begin the list of who will get attribution for all of this. You want to make sure that you plan a press conference in which all of the many people involved are appropriately recognized and you tell the world because this information is not the property of the SETI Institute or any other discovery group. It's the property of humankind. What I've just described takes a lot of time. And we hope that if it is our telescopes that um, are involved with the discovery, we hope that we will have that time to work quietly and quickly to try and build this evidence base for an extraordinary discovery and announcement. But we know from experience. In that case, with the longest lasting false positive that we had, within 24 hours, our offices in California were getting called by um, the New York Times, asking what was going on. And nobody deliberately called them. It was just a series of coincidences that meant someone could deduce that we were actually tracking a signal and were interested
1: in it. Reminds me of one of my favorite Mark Twain quotes, which is, three people can keep a secret if two of them are dead. (laughs) I think that's about it.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So we have these plans, and we spent a lot of time trying to make them up in the first place and then improve them as we've screwed up going along with false positives. But it's not clear that we'll get to use them.
1: Right now, SETI and many others are focused primarily on listening. And I wonder what you think about the balance of time and energy spent developing better ways of listening versus broadcasting? Well,
3: if there are other technological civilizations in the galaxy, I think it's probably pretty obvious that we are among the absolute youngest in terms of communicating across interstellar distances. We're talking 100 years at the maximum that we've been able to do anything that would be of interest and that's actually very generous and that's 100 years out of a 10 billion year history of the galaxy and given that perspective i think it makes sense for the young technology the emerging technology that's what we are to listen first and see what's out there but as time goes on if we fail to detect a signal And if we begin to become an older, advanced technology ourselves and can manage the considerably more difficult job of transmitting, not only is it energetically more costly, but if you're going to transmit, you have to sort of start and you never stop. Because if you transmit for five minutes – then your signal is going to be visible by any potential recipient for that 5 minutes and they have to be looking at you at exactly the right way at exactly the right time when that signal comes whipping past at the speed of light so if transmitting is taken seriously it needs to be done for a long time and whereas you know we get through our weekly planners and our sometimes two- or five-year plans, we haven't done squat with respect to 10,000-year plans. We're just not old enough yet to do that. So when we're young, we listen. When we get old and have the capability, then I think we should, and we should do so for the benefit of technologies out there who are emerging behind
1: us. Stephen Hawking, others have said maybe it's not such a good idea to invite extraterrestrials to interact with us because think about what happened when Columbus landed, this idea of being colonized or being uh, just sort of ripped apart for resources. Eaten for breakfast. Eaten for breakfast. But you seem to have a very different sense of if we're able to listen and, and find intelligent life elsewhere, it might be beyond wanting to eat us for breakfast by that point. Is that fair to say?
3: Yes. Yeah. Now, Stephen Hawking is a pretty smart guy, and there are others who have this same concern that he does. But I look at it and I say, well, they're coming here, and if they can do that, they are older and technically far more advanced than we are. And I sit here and I wonder if it's possible to become an old advanced technology Without taking care of business back home, without managing to outgrow the aggressiveness that may well have had a part in the evolution of their intelligence, it certainly seems to have had in our case. And if they're an advanced technology with the capability to actually manage their civilization and steward their planet, I think... What we have to offer is uniqueness and information and the ways in which we are different than every other species that they have encountered out there. So I'm not quite sure they're going to be sons of bitches. and We have to (laughs) run and hide. I mean, it may be that everybody at home is wonderful and they kick the sons of bitches out and they're the ones that come and find us. I don't know. I just think maybe... To think about what it means to be a truly old technology might not lend itself to an analogy where we make them just as bloody and mean and aggressive as we are.
1: Just recently, Stephen Hawking has brought up again that he really thinks people ought to get their act together and start finding a new planet for us to live on because we're not treating this one very well and put a 100-year goal on that. What do you think behind that idea. Is it time to to look elsewhere? Well, it's a, a long way to elsewhere, even though we know that
3: the nearest star to us, Proxima Centauri, actually has a planet in the habitable zone of that star, which is fantastic for the scientists because that star, Proxima Centauri, is a little M dwarf star. Teeny pipsqueak compared to our sun. Doesn't give out a lot of energy and... The planet, to be at a temperate place, has to be really close to the star to keep warm enough. And we wonder about whether planets around M-stars can retain their atmospheres if they had any. And so it's superb that we have all these questions, and Mother Nature's given us a sandbox to play in right in our backyard. But having said that, right in our backyard is still four light years away, and one should not underestimate the difficulty of getting four light years away when we haven't even yet gotten to Mars. So it's good to be worrying about the next hundred years. It's also true that we don't actually have the knowledge base to necessarily be asking the right questions about what we need to do to get us through those 100 years. But I think we can't not try something. Uh, There are just this long list of existential questions that we've got to find a way to grapple with. And not doing something is not an option. We should take actions in ways that allow us to look for the short-term feedback and make corrections if we can but also to take actions with a future in mind that isn't the tip of our nose this longer look at the future and thinking about hundreds of years from now what are the consequences of our actions and try and drive those in the right direction after the break we have some very serious thinky homework from Jill Tarter.
1: You're listening to Nerdette. One last question for you Jill, what homework would you like to assign to our Nerdette listeners?
3: My homework would be go look at all your social media profiles. And what's the first thing you say about yourself? I would like that first thing to say, that you say about yourself, is that you're an earthling. And I would like you to try and follow that with an open, larger perspective, a more cosmic perspective about who you are, where you are, and how you fit into a much larger universe. Because I think it's that kind of perspective that's going to allow us to get through these next 100 years and to find answers to challenges that don't uh,
1: respect national boundaries right now that have to be worked as global problems. Excellent homework. I will do this homework. I will do that today. I'm going to go and change the first sentence on all of my online profiles. Good. To Maybe Earthling. you can start a meme. Sounds good. All Jill right. Tarter, thanks so much for joining us on Reddit. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure.
2: Okay, Trisha, it's time to tell us about what happened when you told your mom about your tattoo.
1: So I didn't tell her about it before it happened or as it was happening or afterwards, because for some <laughs> reason I was nervous to tell her about it because I've never gotten a tattoo before. Sure. So I decided it would be easier if she got to see it. Totally. As I told her about it, instead of just hearing about it, because then she might have envisioned it being sort of on your more face or on my face, <laughs> I guess. I don't know what I was worried about. But I was worried about it a little bit. So I waited until I went home. So I hopped off an Amtrak train, she picked me up, I got in the car, and decided to just roll up my sleeves and show her. Here, I want to show you what Greta and I did for our hundred and fiftieth episode of Nerdette. It's a tattoo. What is it? It's uh, Gallifreyan, which is the written language of Doctor Who, and it says, Consider the source. Oh. Really? Yeah. Oh, Trisha. So, yeah. Here. It is says, Consider light? the source. Yeah, really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Greta got one too. We went together and recorded it. Supposed <laughs> to be an episode? Yeah. Oh, consider the source. I just said that to somebody the other day. I know. It's a good saying, right? Okay, but don't get any more. All right, <laughs> no more. None. <laughs> I'm not gonna get any more. Okay. I wanted one, okay. and we got it for our 150th episode. That's fine. No, it's fine. Yeah. Just don't, I Wait, like, and our, I like that it's considered the source. It's considered the source, and it's you know pretty simple, and I can keep it covered want whenever to I want. Say that too. It's a good thing, and I like it because I know exactly what it says. But not everybody, but not everybody knows it. what it says. They just think it's a design. Yeah, but yeah. Or they think it's satanic or something. They're not gonna think it's satanic. It's in a good spot. Yeah, it's in a good spot. My CEO says it's elegant. The show is
2: produced by us, Trisha Bobita and Greta Johnson, along with Candace Mattel. Our executive producer is Joel Meyer, and our intern is Brady Guy. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, follow us on NPR One, or you can listen to us on the WBEZ app.
1: One way you can be really helpful to Nerdette is by helping spread the good word, by giving reviews. Give us all the stars all wherever the stars. you can. Thank you to Kimbot83 and Dr. Cindy Lou 77 for giving us such nice reviews on Apple Podcasts. I like to think that Dr. Cindy Lou is Cindy Lou Who from Whoville, <laughs> from Doctor Seuss, and she grew up to be a doctor after you know that really eventful childhood with the Grinch. <laughs>
2: You know what's funny is I saw that and I was just like this is a very random assortment of letters but I guess that just says no, where I Dr. am in my Cindy day. Liu. I know
1: man. I know. Dr. <laughs> Cindy Lou likes Nerdette cuz she's like... a doctor and a Hoovian. Whoville Hoovian? Does she like Dr. Who? Oh. And, oh no. Well, I've maybe created she'll a tell labyrinth us. of Dr. Seuss and Dr. Who. <laughs>
2: Dr. Hoos? Dr. Hoos. Is that like house, though? Is that just Canadian house? Is Dr. Hoos?
1: Yes. Starring Hugh Laurie with a weird accent. <laughs> Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Nerdette Podcast.
2: Our music is by Poddington Bear.
1: Do your homework. Do your homework. Okay, Candace the producer. Turn your microphone on. <clears throat> Before we settle down the idea of getting tattoos...
2: Yeah, we brainstormed a lot of different ideas. We thought about what, well, like a hot air balloon ride or something.
1: Yeah, we considered that, but it also became Be easy. Very clear. Also, wouldn't pay for yeah, that. They
2: weren't going to pay for anything, so we had Candace, our math major
4: producer, come up with some fun facts about the number one hundred and fifty. Okay, one hundred and fifty is a really cool number. First of all, <laughs> one hundred and fifty is the sum of eight consecutive primes. Jill Tartar would like that. Yeah, this is, yeah, the prime thing. Yeah, primes primes are special, and it's really cool. 7, 11, 13, 17, 19, 23, 29, and 31. Add up to 150. Okay, moreover, Euler's totient function over the first 22 integers is 150. Wait, 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 what? So Euler's totient function, Euler is spelled E-U-L-E-R, by the way. Oh, okay. Yeah, some people say Euler, but it's Euler. I might have said Euler. (laughs) Euler. Euclid. Euler. You know? Okay, but more importantly...
2: Totions. Sorry, go on, Candice. We're listening.
4: Okay, okay so the totient function. Annoying but bearable. That's what we are. <laughs> just like tattoos. <laughs> go on. You guys are probably really good math students, I can tell. Nope. I was nope. actually a decent
1: math student for the record. I just said no so, with such vigor <laughs> that I lost my headphones. Oh. I'm a nerd about all the things, but not the math.
4: Okay, but this is going to be exciting because Good. Euler's totient function counts the positive integers up to a given integer that are relatively prime to that integer. So if you count all of the totient oh. functions from 1 to 22, which I did, because. I saw that it was 150, but I wasn't convinced, so I did it this you morning. You tested it out. You did your I homework. And I counted these, and it's 150. Wait, wow. can I see it? So not only is that special, but like 22 is kind of special because it's over the first 22 integers. Ooh. Wow. So we could have just done this for a 22nd episode. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Wow. Okay. I have some other non-math facts. Oh, good. Okay. In June 2015, an, a 150-year-old tortoise died at the San Diego Zoo. Oh. Okay. I'm sad that's that not a two fun fact. Ago, Sorry. <laughs> Fun fact. Okay. Two years ago a turtle died. Okay, real fun fact. Uh-huh. Exactly 150 years ago, today was a Sunday. All right.
1: Oh <laughs> It's more fun than a turtle dying. So in that way, it's yeah, a fun that's fact. True.
4: And I mean, it is pretty crazy that we can know what day of the week yeah. happened 150 in, years ago, I suppose. Yeah, in 1867. Okay, also in 1867. Okay, so 150 years ago this month, the Austro-Hungarian Empire was formed. Hmm. And... um, Yeah, what else? What else oh, oh, on? oh, oh, there's a, finally a really good one. There's a good one to end on. <laughs> I forgot. Oh, I hope you're right. You seem okay. really excited. Okay, finally, 150 is Dunbar's number. Okay, so there's this professor of evolutionary anthropology at the University of Oxford named Robin Dunbar. And he says, or his calculations say, that humans can only maintain a network of 150 close friends. Like your brain can only handle 150 meaningful relationships in your mind at a time. I actually love that. This makes me want to, like, delete a bunch of Facebook friends.
1: But really, (laughs) 150. Like, I like like a nice dinner party sized amount of friends.
4: Right, right. Well, I think you don't have to be friends with all those people, but that's the sweet spot for, like, the number of people in your life you can associate with. And that number goes back to, like, hunter-gatherer societies Hmm. where 150 was the magic number. The size of your clan. Yeah.
1: (laughs) All right. I mean, those are pretty fun facts about numbers. I think my favorite is the one where you just did a lot of math.
2: The Euler-Totient mm-hmm. F- mm-hmm. forum theorem. Function. 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 <laughs> I knew it started with an F and it wasn't the word
1: forum. Thanks, Candace.
2: <laughs> You're welcome. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Candace. Here's 250 more.
0: Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Tanwen. Nguyen